welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. My conversation today is with Janet Reed. Janet's a professor in child-computer interaction at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. Janet's path to academia is a little bit unusual. She started off as a maths teacher um, and wanted to work part-time and ended up falling into doing a PhD after she had a family and while also working. So our discussions here are really wide-ranging. And throughout, I find that she's incredibly thoughtful, reflective and proactive in how she goes about untangling processes and challenges. If she doesn't know something, she'll reach out to mentors, she'll read books, she'll document the process in all sorts of interesting ways. And there's this real striving to understand and develop, not just herself, but also those around her. Because this ends up a long conversation, I've added some notes about the high-level topics Uh, and with time indexes, and I'll talk about the content in two parts. There are also the usual more detailed notes that are given and links to people and resources she has talked about at the end on the webpage. So in this first part, up to about an hour, Janet explores her own learning journey, learning how to do research, how to supervise students, and how to support good learning experiences for students. She has some really interesting things to say about today's university process-driven culture and argues that we need to do a much better job at understanding students and how to better support the learning experience, not equating attendance with learning. In the second part, she talks about being a complete academic and that one of the challenges is really that no one knows what an academic actually does. She talks about how she deals with demands on her own time, um, her time with her family, the potential costs of being too efficient, about being proactive and looking after your own needs, about creating a collaborative group culture, and what she wishes for in terms of encouraging and supportive leadership and, and having people actually say to you, well done. Janet, thanks for joining me today. You've got a really interesting background because you didn't come straight into university doing human-computer interaction that you're doing now. No, no, no. So I, um, I was a classic child of a certain era where if you were smart, you went to university, and if you weren't smart, you didn't. Um, and I had, uh, I had quite an interesting childhood. My, I was one of three. So we all three of us went to different schools. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really kind of cool because we didn't really compete at school, which was quite nice. Um, and then it was my sister passed to go to university, then I went to university, and my brother went to university, and it was sort of assumed you'd go to university, so we all went to university. Um, and I did maths because, mainly actually because I, well, to be truth be known, I fancied the maths teacher at school. <laughs> Yeah. I'm forever indebted to Mr. Cole. Was, we used to all sit there like ogling at him. Uh, yeah. We often think we have rational reasons. Well, no, no but I fancied Mr. Cole rational. like crazy. And mm. he was a really, really good maths teacher. Mm. And he was really, really uh, particular about everything being just so. We were never allowed to say O oh, for zero. We were never allowed to say that. We were never allowed to say minus numbers. Mm. 
they were negative numbers, so minus is what you do to them. And uh, and he was really sort of fussy like this. And I think somewhere in that, I thought, wow, I'd like to be a maths teacher like Mr. Cole. So I went to university, I did maths. I didn't think of being a teacher, mm. I'll be honest. I thought yeah. about, I didn't think about anything. Yeah. Just went, off you go, you trot off, you go. I uh, spent a lot of time at university doing what you do at university. I used to tap dance and um, used, to, used to sing jazz with the lecturers during the afternoon when we were supposed to be in tutorials and things. And then I went into maths teaching because it was kind of what do you do with a maths degree. Mm, yeah. yeah. Um, and I enjoyed I enjoyed teaching. I did about 10 years. And this was high teaching school? Teaching high schools, yeah. 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 yeah, had some moments, you know. <laughs> As it was I'm tough. Sure, it was tough, yeah. especially because I'm quite small. Yeah. <laughs> and kids were Kids were all bigger than me. Um, yeah, so I enjoyed that, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I did about six years in the first school, and then I started having children, so I wanted to go part-time. My school wouldn't let me go part-time, which is interesting, because nowadays they couldn't yeah. do that, could they? Yeah. Yeah. They'd have to have let you go part-time. Yeah. But in them days, no, that's not an option. Mm. You know? So I then moved to another school, which was an all-boys school. And this is where the tale gets quite interesting, actually, because the all-boys school, every single senior post was held by a male Head of maths, head of English, head of upper school, headmaster, assistant headmaster. They were all male posts. Um, and I was there and I was having my second child, I think, while I was there. And I can't remember if I was, I can't remember the, the chronology of this. I was either very pregnant, very post-pregnant, either which way I was very emotional. And, and the guy gave them a timetable and didn't have the same pro rata number of free periods as anybody else and I went to see him and I said this is not right and he said but well, you're part-time you don't need those and I said no this is a fundamentally this is fundamentally not right and he would not move so I stood there in his office and I said well in that case you can have my resignation I left wow went home told me wow. and I said I've walked out yeah. my job <laughs> that was a brave thing to do when I, it was I, with hindsight yeah I was yeah. probably a bit hormonal <laughs> <laughs> but still a very principled stand is yeah, just... and, it, and I've, I've always said that this has empowered me because I've walked mm. out of a job. And I think if, you, if you're prepared to walk out of a job with a superannuation and, a, you know, yeah. a job for life, which yeah. is teaching yeah. it. Um, but, yeah, when I think back, I think that was a bit crazy. Yeah. But if you had a state, it would have got bugged you the whole time that you were being treated unfairly and you know, not having the Yeah, same. and it was cause it, I think it was because it was a boys' school mm. and it did have a very male tradition. I mean, the whole place was very male, obviously, and the... the it was really nice, actually. Teaching boys was really nice because they weren't teasing teaching girls. Teenage girls. If you take the teenage girls away from the boys, it's a very nice environment. But I loved the teaching, but I was not being... Yeah, so that was quite fun. Yeah, so I walked away from that, and then I thought, oh, my days, what do I do? Like, how do I earn any money? Um, and by that point, I'd been teaching IT and computer programming in both these schools because in them days, if you did maths, you were the person who taught IT. And then you taught computing. So I, I'd, uh, I ran a computing club in one school, taught them all BBC basic and things. And so I was kind of in that space. And then I saw a job advertised at a local college for an IT lecturer. I thought, oh, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do, I'll do, you know. And I went, I remember that interview as well because I went to this interview and um, they, they said, they asked me, and, and this, this will rather age me in this interview. <laughs> they asked me, they said, do, do you know DB3? <laughs> And I was there thinking, I don't know what DB3 is. I'm sure I can learn it before I come here. So I just said yes. <laughs> Turn obviously That's called DB3. backing yourself. Because I bet yeah. you did learn it before you went. Is that called backing yourself? Well, I no, would call no. it backing mm. yourself. 
But you, yeah. and I bet you did learn it before you started. Then. I learned a little bit of it before Enough I started. To, yeah. Be- yeah, but because it. I'd had 10 years of teaching, I didn't know mm. that you only need to be One a step. small distance ahead of pupils. Yeah, and so I worked there, which was really nice. Um, and, and that was, they were fascinating times because at one time I was teaching nursery nurses. And um, these nursery nurses, they didn't even know that the mouse had to be on the table. Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it was, it's all good. It's all it's all good experience, yeah. these things, yeah. yeah. And then the way I landed up in the university was purely by chance because somebody at the university had gone off with, for an operation um, and they were desperate for someone to teach classes. And they, I was teaching university courses at the college, so they asked me to go and fill in at the university. So I never actually had an interview for my current job. <laughs> really? No. Is this the same job that you're in now? Well, effectively, effectively. yeah, because then I just stayed yeah. on. Wow. Yeah, eventually... Kind of, yeah, got made permanent yeah. and, and so on and so forth. So yeah. you started off as a lecturer there um, on the basis of having had that experience. So what what was the trigger for thinking that you wanted to do a PhD? So what, well, what happened then was that, um, yeah, I got into the, I got into university and I was sort of, I was, I was, I was in two camps for a while. So I was at the college and the university at the same time, dithering around. And the college was quite interesting. Again, if, you, if you're not familiar to English education, you won't know this, but in English education, there was like a, there was a silver book contract that some people were on in the colleges, which was like the best contract. And everyone employed since was supposed to be like a workhorse, you know. Mm-hmm. And the people on silver book were always, they were typically better qualified. Um, and they were mainly teaching degree courses. And they gave me some good advice, some of those people. You know, they said, if you're going to go into university, you know, make sure that you, you don't just stay as an hourly paid lecturer. Um, and I just decided I needed a PhD then. Right. And it's quite interesting because there was about five of us taken on at that time because it was the IT boom. They were scraping people off the streets to teach yeah. IT and computer yeah. science. They were, they were literally, you know, if, if you walk past and you knew what an yeah. if statement was. Yeah, knew, what a mouse, yeah. knew where the mouse sat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so they were scraping people off the streets and loads of people, the, the whole industry expanded like crazy um, and they just couldn't get enough staff really to to, to do with it. So... I went in and I, I was only, the only one of the ones who came in and thought, I need a PhD to carry on in this job or to make anything. So that's when I did my PhD. So I started my PhD, I think, in about, oh, now I'm asking myself, 2000 maybe? Right, like. right. Mm. I'd have to look So you up. were doing this part-time while so you I did were working part-time full-time while I worked. Yeah. with kids? Yeah. Four kids. Four kids. <laughs> Four kids, one PhD. Walk in the park. <laughs> yeah, a couple of cats. Yeah. <laughs> I think the cats were probably the important factor. <laughs> Lots of stroking of cats. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, um, I was well supported, but my supervision team, not nobody on my supervision team, was doing research. So how can they supervise you? Because this was a modern university in right. a crisis era. So my mate, I well, I say no, nobody. My director of studies officially mm. was the dean of faculty, who was a professor in forensic biology or something so he was the person who was brackets experienced on the team so how did you get through how did you find your own support (laughs) well then so the other thing was that that my main my main hands-on supervisor um was a very dedicated guy he was i mean he was a great guy he kind of wanted to do research he he never found the sort of space to do it but me and him alongside and went to lots of conferences together um, we had a, a, we had a very useful relationship. He was very good at being critical and things. So he was very good. 
Um, but I, I, he was, and he advised me really early doors to go out and meet people and get my work published. So I think my first paper was in Sunderland at British HCI conference, my first main paper. Um, and I remember sitting in Sunderland in the HCI conference, like as a fairly, you know, fairly rookie, even though I was relatively old, mm. fairly rookie. And uh, there was a person in the audience who probably I shouldn't name, I couldn't name them, but who asked the most wonderful question of somebody, not me. And I thought, man, I want to be that guy. I think you should name them. Oh, well, you shouldn't. If you'd like them. to name no, them. No, I can name them because like I have told the person that since. Like I've told the person thing. since. This is Liam Watts from Bath. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that was such a good question. And I kind of looked at him and thought, that's where I want to be. So that's, isn't that amazing, <laughs> that just one person doing something that they think is just a routine thing that they do, but the way that they do it he just can so well. impact yeah. and empower you. And then many years later, I did a PhD exam with Leon, and I told him all this, we went yeah. for Curry, and actually doing a PhD exam yeah. with him was also wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's a great yeah. guy. Yeah, so that was, that was really... Yeah, so was, what yeah. was it about, the, was it the content of the question or the way he asked it or what? He was sort of gentle and constructive, but clearly coming with deep knowledge, you know. And I just thought, wow, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So then I got my PhD, yeah, and uh, um, I'd been all over the place then, so it was all cool, and I'd got the bug. Once you've got the bug, you've got the bug. No, the bug. No, you've got the bug, not the book. Not the book. <laughs> not the, the book. That would, be, that would be a book. You got a book, <laughs> a book sorry, yeah. <laughs> So not a big, yeah. a bug. I got the bug yes. to do research. Yeah. And I I reflect now, I, I was extremely lucky because I got into child computer interaction at a time when it was just accelerating. And I got into it at the right level as it accelerated. So I wrote the book with Panos while I was doing my PhD. And and um you know, that was it was it was quite a lot of luck, but some of it was active on my part yeah. because I was prepared to go out and travel and do things, yeah. and, and that's you know, it's fascinating because a few yeah. things you've said. There's been this really interesting interplay of the, the historical context that you are in, mm -hmm. and the opportunities that were available, and you acting and and getting out there and doing stuff. But somehow all of those things had to come together. Whether it was getting asked to do the lecturing in the mm -hmm. I, in the mm -hmm. university yeah. because they needed people yeah. or yeah. Well, the other interesting thing was that every single time I asked for money, I was given it in my university, partly because nobody else was asking. So I could go everywhere. I could have everything, you know. My head of department at that time, who currently actually is now my acting head again, you know, he was really good at supporting me. Um, and I had, you know, a couple of people before that, but he particularly, you know, I'd go, okay, and say, oh, what do you want now, Janet? And I'd say, oh, go on, then he'd say, you know, and he'd just sign money off for me. So I, I had opportunities. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the really sad things about how PhD work is funded in the UK because it doesn't typically come with any money. For travel. Yeah, the university work. takes the fees, yeah. but they yeah. don't support the process of, of delivering a really useful researcher at the end of it, which is a real shame. You know, and I, I was dead lucky to get that, really. But, um, yeah, and I met some great people on the way, so I made friends with everybody. <laughs> I'm quite good at making friends with so, people. <laughs> so lots of networking and setting up. Yeah, and but mainly with men, intriguingly. Yeah, I network with men over beers. Mm -hmm. Drank a lot of beer. I was much less good at networking with women. Yeah. Tried it, found it more difficult. 
Is any insights? Any insights? Yeah. I don't know. I went to a couple of these women meeting things, and they felt a little bit like moan fests and moan, moan, yeah. moan, moan, yeah. as in yeah. moaning. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't want them to be somewhere that would just women, but a lot of the women in academia seem to feel the only place they can go is in just women spaces. Mm. Not all of them, mm. you know. So a lot of the women that I do network better with are women who don't have a gender debate, if gender position, if, if you like. Mm. Yeah, so that's quite interesting because I, yeah, I typically, and the British HHI community was really good to me. Um, I, I mean, I joined the British HHI committee and that community was great. You know, we went to all these British HHI conferences. Um, yeah, the changing academic situation is that the, the regional things like that have been, they've become less important. So people don't publish in them the same. Yes. And then the community's lost, yes. which is a great show. So yes, I have a, I think there's a real tension around that because I recognise, I, I was at, mm -hmm. um, I'm, I've just been in Australia for a little bit and I was at OSCI, mm -hmm. um, which is the Australian HCI conference end of November, and they're the most wonderful gatherings, mm -hmm. you know, because they're people who work under the same you know, sort of rules yeah, yeah, and... Yeah. Same um, frameworks. Yes. In the same way. You know, yeah, like normal people, mm -hmm. they get busy in their day-to-day -day life, so they actually mm -hmm. don't get to connect mm -hmm. up and just... Just the networking that mm. happens and being able to discuss practical things like how do we how mm. are we going to lobby the government to do X or how do we get more of our you know yeah, that's HR people on how do we do the rest? And, ah. yeah so all of those <laughs> sorts of discussions and I think national mm. um, conferences are, and regional conferences mm. are really critically important and they're not valued in tenure promotion systems yep. and and the I think things like some of our major conferences in mm. our field mm. are predominantly. American-based, yeah. although yeah. there's lots of efforts now to make them more um, international by where they're held, mm. but there's still a sense where in some way they function as both the national and international context for, yeah. you know, some it's a of bit those. Like, it's a bit like a federalisation, isn't it? And, mm. and, and the great sadness is when I first started, British HI Conference was very highly regarded. Yes. They had the Springer edited volumes. Yeah. You know, your work was polished to the nth degree. Um, you know, all the people were there. And now, you know, they'll go to one conference a year, and in our case, it'll be Kai, mm. and British HI, they might send a student to, yes. and, and, and then the students are not getting the chance to meet these professors. That's yes. a, it's a real shame. Yeah. Yeah. I do try and go to British HI conference, Maybe by the way. we need some <laughs> other mechanisms, yeah. you know, other, mm. other avenues for getting people together where maybe it's not about publishing, but mm. I don't know, some more work. We've, tried doing, we've or... tried doing that. One of my colleagues, he's, um, he's, been, he's run three now. We've run, we, well, I say, He's run, we've run, but he, I've, he's been uh, the main organiser, definitely. But we've been running PhD schools at our university and inviting UK PhD students to come along. So when we've had the back of a bit of money, when we've had some money from the university, they, yeah. they pay for like distinguished visitors to come. So when we've had a distinguished visitor, we've run a day. Because everybody can get to our university in a day in Britain, you know, a small mm. place. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's been quite nice because we're networking for students. That's but, lovely. But. Um, and especially important mm. if you're saying mm. too that students aren't getting a lot of mm. funding opportunities mm. to go internationally. Yeah, because they're not, they're not they don't come with any money, do they? Mm. That's the thing. Mm. I mean, the PhD system in the UK is carnage. Mm. It's broken. In what right. ways? Do I you don't think? want to go there. No, you don't. <laughs> it's just broken because the you can't get PhD students on. Uh, oh gosh, you can't get PhD students from EPSRC money. 
Which so is you the, can't the put them on your grant. So it's the national funding. So you can't get them on your grant money. Um, and they've decided to push for these doctoral training centres. Yes. So they're putting all the PhD students in one place, um, which then effectively churns out a clone set of PhD students. And it means that any university who doesn't have a doctoral training centre becomes sort of second-rated. Um, and, it, and it's just, it's really, really what you want is a student working with a supervisor who is passionate to get that work done. I mean, that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate success story. And if you have a supervisor who's supervising at some level maybe 10 students, they're not getting a good experience from that, you know. I mean, I once read that you should never have more than six students at any one time, ideally. And, you know, there's been times when I've had 14. Mm, that's too You know, too they haven't many. all been hands-on, but it's, I've mm. been in charge. You know, I've been, yeah. the, I've been the person yeah. whose name would be on the yeah. hit list. 14 students, yeah. that's crazy. How many um, do you have now? Currently, I think I've got four. I say I think. Not <laughs> I know, I know. I'm the same. I don't know if I can tell you exactly how many I'd have to count up because yeah. people come and go. Mm. And is that about what you want to have normally now? Or? I would like to have, yeah, typically like three full-timers would be nice. Mm. Like a couple of part-times. Three yeah. full-timers so that you've got some people just hanging around yeah, the lab all day. Yeah, I've currently got one full-timer, mm. two, two part-time, yeah. two overseas. Yeah. One in somewhere else, yes. Yeah, so well, that's yeah. yeah, and I'm named on a couple of other things yeah. just for the yeah. just for funsies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, in talking about PhD students, mm. what what about sort of learning to supervise them? Well, yes. Yeah, so there's another interesting thing. So, but, you know, roll back, roll back to me doing my PhD, and I had this supervisor who was very dedicated, very very dedicated. I mean, he put more time in on my PhD than, than many people would have done. Um, round about the time my PhD finished, he quit the job. And then our department had just me left to supervise. Wow. Pretty much. Why? Because you had to have a PhD to supervise? You had to have a PhD to supervise. Yeah. And ideally, you were research active. So I, I actually, you know, I ticked both boxes. Obviously. So, and he left and he was already supervising um, two or three other people, I think, I remember rightly. So I was defaulted onto those three people. As he left, I became their director of studies. Um, and I felt a bit of a rookie, obviously, at that point in time. I didn't know and, anything. And also these mm. wouldn't have been in your core research areas. Well, no, they were. No as, it, no, as it turned out, they were. I mean, oh, okay, one was somebody doing work with tangible interface and children. Um, one was doing – or two others, they were doing um, – Somebody was doing design, participatory design stuff and, and with children. So they mm. were doing children things. Oh, so I was happy to take them on. That's good. I was very happy to take them on. It wasn't like, um, mm. they weren't like whole, you know, people doing sort of, you know, natural language processing or something. Um, that's the point. That's the other PhD issue we'd have got. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the, these, these three were like defaulted onto me. And I thought, wow. And the interesting thing then is we, we had a story at the university that you were supposed to put people on teams um, so they would get experience. I don't know if this is a common story you hear about. So I was, my head of department said, oh, we really put some of these other people on the team so they can get experience. And I said, no, because they're not doing the work that these students are doing. I'm not putting someone on there and you can give them a tick for experience when they haven't done anything. I mean, now there was a tension there and I actually wrote a little um, essay about this called Supervise to Fit or Fit to Supervise. Oh, is it published? <laughs> 
I know, I don't think so. Is it on your web page? No, maybe it could be, but yeah. Maybe if you put it up there, I can link it. (laughs) Okay. So so fit to supervise or supervise to fit was this interesting thing. And and I read a lot of papers on PhD supervision at the time. And there was this thing called the rickety bridge of supervision because supervision's really understood it. There's quite a lot of people, mainly in Australia, I can say, because there's a lot of educational research in there. So anyway, I thought, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be beaten down on this. I'm not gonna put people on this who are not doing any research. You've never written a paper, just so they can have a tick, so they can somehow then supervise a PhD. Because I was, I think I, I recognised that my supervisor, although not research active in that sense, had took me to conferences, did know the community, did push me to publish, all them kind of things, you know, and I, and I felt that's like the minimum people should have. So I went out and found some friends. I had friends, so I got three friends to come and help out on the supervision, experienced professors in the UK. And I sort of dotted one of them on each of these, and because they liked me, they did it for free, there was no issues, you know. So, And that was great, because then I learned, they were all different, and I learned from those three yeah. things. Yeah. I couldn't necessarily nail what I learned, but I definitely learned. I was, that's, I was just going to ask I was you. I was looking. <laughs> <laughs> you just uh, preempted that. Well, so you can't I, really, I was going to say, do you... Do you in what ways were they different and that, that you could sort of see being an outsider, at least on their supervision styles? Yeah, so one, one was, um, yeah, what, what you might call like a butterfly thinker, mm-hmm. you know. As soon as we landed on one topic, flitted off to where else it could go and that was, and that was absolutely brilliant at the beginning of a PhD. I thought that that was like just great at the beginning of his PhD. Open up, open up, open up, open up, open up. In actual fact, it's less and less brilliant these days because students don't have the luxury of time. Um, But that was really, and that would work with a part-time PhD much more than it would work with a full-time PhD, I think. Um, I had others who were much better at sitting back and letting the students say what they wanted to do and sort of, gently pushing them back to where they felt it should go. You know, so it was interesting, the sort of interplay of things. Some more hands-off than others, some more hands-on. Um, but that was a great, just a great opportunity, really. But the, the other thing, of course, the students were all different. Yes, of, yes. So actually what I saw, I saw three supervisors supervising three people, but those three supervisors supervising one of the others, it might yeah, have been different. Yeah, it might have been different, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you learn yeah. as you go along, don't yeah. you? Your supervision yeah. changes. Some people so, need. So how would you? What, what have you? What have been your core lessons over the years about supervision? Then, because you sound like you're quite reflective about it. If you already started reading papers, I don't know how many yeah, people try to read the literature on, on it. Yeah. I'm. I'm a. I'm a, maybe I'm a bit of a dinosaur, <laughs> and I still maintain. And I've told everyone in my team that this is my position, and they know that. Most of them also take it as their position that you should be supervised by somebody who's an active researcher, who is publishing, and who knows the community that you're publishing in. I think that's. I mean, I think that's really that should be the line, and you shouldn't be allowed to go back. There should be no supervision under that line because if they don't know how the community behaves, what the community's methods are, they don't know what the community, you know, how the community publishes, if they don't know roughly or even can't scrape back in their heads that somebody somewhere's doing that, hang on, let me figure it yeah. out. You know what I mean? Yes. Then I don't think, I think that's really bad and I, and I think it's prevalent in universities that that is not the case because of this supervised to fit, fit to supervise mm-hmm. thing. Um, and I, I did 
many years ago, I made a, a little uh, booklet, which was doing a PhD with me booklet. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> and it basically said, here's what you can expect. Because was, there was an interesting thing about expectations. So I think when I went into supervision, when I was first supervised, I didn't know what my supervision team brought. I didn't know. I was naive. Well, yeah. Although you were a mature age student. Yeah, but I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know what yeah. they were all bringing. Yeah. I didn't know how I was supposed to work with them. I didn't know anything about publishing protocols. I didn't know, you know, what what was what were their limitations, you know. So, you know, I have this little sort of protocol that says, you know, when you meet someone, and I just it's not just doing a PhD with me, it's doing a PhD with our group. You know, I will tell you how many people I've examined. I will tell you how many people are supervised. I'll tell you what I do know and what I don't know. I'll tell you, you know, what I norm how I normally would normally supervise roughly, you know, and I'll tell them I'm pretty hands off. I'm, you know, I'm not one meeting every week. Don't expect to see me every week because I might not be there. But when we're out of paper, you know, I'll work all weekend for you. Um, yeah. So I have this little sort of set of laying it out, which I think is, because yeah. also they have to express what they think they're getting. Yeah. And it's kind of like a contract. And, and I think that's really interesting because that we don't have great. that. No, that, but that sounds really great and really important mm. to do that. Because, you know, you said before about you had those three students and mm. if any of those supervisors had, had have supervised one mm. of the others, it could have been different because everyone is mm. different. So having that sort of contract as a trigger for a conversation, yeah, really a conversation. about who are yeah. you, who am yeah. I, what do, we, what do you need? Yeah, what, what do, do I bring Yeah, and what do you bring? Yeah. And, and it obviously, as you mature, I mean, as you mature along, because with good students, you know, you're busy mates at the end, aren't you? You're, you're yeah. not, it's not the same, but it's, it's where you start from. And I think if you start from the wrong place, there's quite a lot of catching up. And there's also, if you start from the wrong place, sometimes the student can be really confused and a bit lost. And, um, you know, and I've, we're, I was actually asked to reflect um, by my head of department or previous head of department or maybe previous but one but one head of department. I don't know what's going on, but I was asked to reflect on, on PhD success and what what made some students more successful than others, what were we doing as a team, all about the whole supervision process. And we had a big conversation about that, me and me and my senior colleagues, and we we, we kind of pulled out a whole set of things. So one of the key things was also understanding also what the skills the student brought, yes. especially skills. Yes. So, you know, we had one student who struggled and it was because we thought that that student could program. And way hey, it turned out they couldn't. You know, you've got to know that at the yeah. beginning. If you know it at the beginning, yeah. then you're ahead. So so there was this whole sort of skills. and, and I, um, So one of the interesting things I did on my PhD, I, I got to do a doctoral consortium when I was doing my PhD. Again, my supervisor said, go to the... So you went as a student? Yes, yeah, as a student. I went to his doctoral mm-hmm. consortium. Mm-hmm. And they asked us to line up in order of how far we were down our PhD. I remember this. And we lined up. I think it was at British HCI. And um, I was a part-time PhD. And people said, I'm two years in, I'm three years in. And, and it struck me that years into a PhD wasn't a measure of how far you were. It's not a good measure of how far you are, is it? Because you, you, it was about this sort of understanding your maturity. And, and I came away from that thinking, okay, so how do you, how do you figure out how far you are in a PhD, that's a really interesting question. Yeah. How do you know? Yeah. How do you know? And, and equally, that's the big question is, how do I know when to finish? That's a big you know? question. And I wrote another document about mm-hmm. this. I've got a book about how to be examined for a PhD. How do I know I'm ready? One and is that on the web? No, or no it could available. be on the web, but it isn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a website. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, th so this particular book, like, is is it's got like a little che checklist, like you know, how do I know when I'm, how do I know when I've done enough? It's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, normally people just end because the time runs up. Yes. But but that's you know it's it's not really a great mm. indicator, is it that you've. So I then made this little, um, like a cosy model thing, and, and I sort of had like, you know, partway there, making great progress, wow, sort of statements in it, Ooh, kind of a nice little thing. I've, this is actually written up somewhere. Um, and this was about assessing how much you know, how famous you are, um, how significant your work is, and it was basically against the learning outcomes for a PhD, because obviously the teacher in me can't go away, you know. Well, that, comes, ah! so that, that was going to be another question I was going to ask you. Is it in what ways you think your teaching background helped you? You know, so something like that just is a is a quite a structured way of thinking about a learning journey. Yeah, so I don't know if that was from a teaching background really, because when I was teaching, I was in the free days of you know you could almost teach, like just teach. You didn't have to do all that paperwork. I think I got out at the right time. But now the universities are doing this, so it's getting worse. Yeah, we're supposed to video all our lectures and upload them and, oh, dear. Anyway, I've, I've so far failed on that, but we'll probably have to catch up eventually. Yeah, no, the interesting thing about the, the I think I'm quite, I'm quite analytical because I'm a mathematician at heart, you know. Mm -hmm. So I like things to be tidy and I like to understand processes, you know. And, and I, know these, I know these are noisy and I know these are wicked problems. I know they're all noisy things, but I like to try and, Tidy them up for my own sanity, I think, more than anything else. So, so I think that that probably comes more from general maths. But also, you know, when you're teaching maths, you're detangling problems. So you're trying to make them into step by step. I mean, that, that's the whole of teaching maths is making something complicated into a series of steps. So a PhD is a complicated thing. A series of steps kind of, kind of works, yeah. Yeah, so I've done this whole cosy. This, 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 so this is this tick list thing. And I, and I you know, say to my students, you know, build a website so you're famous. You know, when you... When somebody rings you up from, like, you know, the Daily Mail, yes, you've made it, you know. And then, so there's, I, there's other things as well as the, you know, there's being published is in there, you know, you first when you get a poster somewhere and you meet your community, when you can name five, your five heroes, you know, who are your heroes, you know, identify your heroes. I've got all these things in it. And then I, from that, I then had this charm bracelet thing that going on for a while where you could win charms. Was it? And a, I've, used, you, that, I've used that for doctoral consortiums. Is it a physical I haven't bracelet? done that now, but I could do now because of 3D printing. I could yes, print I them. I could give them out. So yeah. I'm doing a doctoral consortium in, in IDC. Yeah, and I could potentially do that there. Because I then got, you know, eventually I got asked to do doctoral consortiums myself. Yeah. And when you go to do these things, and we did one together, didn't we? Yes, we, we did. And when you do Number. these things, you um, you realise that a lot of what they want, they then they kind of want your wisdoms, your pearls. They want the they want the nuggets, even though they're talking about their work, which is generally a bit of an effort. Yeah. What to some extent, they want some pearls of, of wisdom from you. And um, so I used this in a British HCI doctoral consortium, I think with Russell Hill, and that had these charms. And it was to just to try and help them understand that in the low points and the high points and it being a journey, you know, because it is a journey and sometimes you go down the wrong route and you have to just come back again. And sometimes you go down a route and discover there is a route there. It's a bit like your veins in your heart, isn't it? They'll find a way somehow to get the blood through. And and I think it's sort of understanding that other people have done it, They've other people have walked the walk. So, I, you know, I had like a gun for the night when you felt like shooting yourself. <laughs> and I had a rope. 
uh, for when you'd, and it was it was not a rope to hang yourself with. It wasn't all that. It wasn't all that bad. The rope was about when you've untangled a really complex problem no, no. when you've solved it. You know, you've got this tangled up wool, and uh, so, and I use these just as props to help you know help people understand that I quite like props. Yeah. I think I'm a quite visual thinker, really. Yeah, yeah. If only there were props for academic writing, I'd be away. <laughs> Which is what I teach now. Well, I teach maths and academic writing at the minute. I don't teach any computing. Mm. So the charm bracelet sounds like a really good idea. I think all it, academics should have them. We should have them as I academics. Think we, I grown think ups. we should as well because it's, grown a, it's just bracelets. part of making that mm. whole journey mm. more visible mm. and just saying... Tattoos. You know, that, we could that, have tattoos having, on our faces. <laughs> having, having those moments are sort of part of it and, yeah. mm. you know... They can be tough, but you get over them, and also celebrating the mm. successes and you know, that you did untangle the, the tricky problem. So when I started my PhD, mm. which is probably where some of this started, um, I had a bit of a fight with the research, getting my research agreed at the university at the very beginning. Do you mean the topic? The topic, picking the topic, and there was this little moment when, um, uh, yeah, something came against me. Let's say, right? So you know, something came against me, and I think at that time I had some young children. And I used to listen a lot to Thomas the Tank Engine. And at this point, when is it Henry or Percy goes into the tunnel and refuses to come out? No, I don't remember. There's a point when one of these the trains engine. goes in the tunnel and yeah. refuses to come out because uh, for fear of his paint being damaged or something. But And I remember writing this little, um, <laughs> little essay, if you like, about how I was in the tunnel and I was not coming out. And, uh, yeah, that was quite fun. Yeah, it's a little, little reflection thing about... Mm. So do you keep it... So you... You've talked a few times about writing a little essay about some of these issues that are obviously are sort of I running around mm. in your head that mm. have been issues you've dealt with and then you've turned them into an essay. Mm. Is this sort of a routine practice that you have around doing this sort of reflective writing? I come and go. Yeah. yeah. I think we all come and go on things because sometimes you've got time, sometimes you've got opportunity, sometimes you feel reflective, yeah. sometimes you don't. One of my life aims has been to build my own blog page, but I've summarily failed on that. Because then I think, gosh, then I should write something. <laughs> um, so another time I was teaching in Hanoi in Vietnam yep. for a week. And I spent every day I was doing that 750 word challenge. You know, when you, there's a 750 yeah. word website and you yeah. write 750 words. Mm-hmm. And I spent the whole of that week reflecting on my teaching with these students and what I was, what was going on. And, and then I ended up ranting on about the, the university management, you know, <laughs> and, and I've still got all these, of course, you know. Because I had like months of those. So what was the value in doing that for you? I think it's good to express things. Sometimes you have to rant. Yeah. So getting it out of your head. You do. You have to get... Mm. But if you rant at the wrong people, Mm. then that's never good, is it? Because, you know, I mean, I am am dead lucky where I work. You know, it it might not be the greatest university on the planet because it isn't. I had to laugh. Did you see the university here that said, moving, uh, moving to be... World class university. <laughs> <laughs> that was really cool. This aspirational like yeah. university. Because you actually saw the words world class university on the banner. Yeah. And they're moving and to moving the as well. <laughs> but yeah, I don't work in the greatest university in the world. You know, it's okay. It's, it's a modern university, so it's got its modern university behaviours. Like it's got no confidence in itself. It's got no confidence in the academics. Um, you know, it doesn't trust us. You know, when, when everything has to be double checked quality audited and all yeah. this nonsense I and that's, that's that's many universities i think it's creeping that, towards yeah. the old ones as well I now think, so it's yeah, quite I interesting that... yeah so i don't yeah but in in that in that space i have you know a set of great colleagues who 
will stop me when I'm about to do the uh, okay I quit now moment oh, that's, good. that's good <laughs> and you know and sometimes I'll say I'll, I'll actually send them an email and they'll say shall I send this to the myself. boss <laughs> they'll say no Janet don't do it <laughs> so obviously you had a sense that you shouldn't as well to send it to them yeah but you know we're very honest yeah. and, and we have these honest yeah. conversations um about the moments when I get very 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 grumpy mm. and I do get very mm. very grumpy but it sounds yeah. like you get you have a strong sense of fairness and justice. I do. With that, are they the sort of things, those sort of issues, are they the sort of issues you get grumpy about? I think I have a very, very strong sense of fairness and justice, yeah, because yeah. my childhood, yeah. <laughs> when we had everything was algorithmed. So I get really angry about things not being... Not fair, because I don't believe in fairness. Fairness is not... fair. Well, it depends what you mean by fair. Um explainable is possibly a better, you know, adequately explainable is probably the word you're looking for. When you have sort of things happen in the background or sort of shady dealing or anything like that, that makes me really angry because um, I believe that we should be entirely transparent and I think we should be, we should be able to justify what we do. So I think anything, anything's okay if it's justified in a, you know, but a lot of stuff, be very careful what I say. A lot of stuff, I think, in many universities is decided by a little gaggle of men who happen to be on a corridor at a certain moment, mainly men. I mean, there are sometimes women. But there's an awful lot of decision-making takes yeah. place without any reasonable or, or adequate yeah. um, awareness for the people. And, and some people don't get in those decisions. And I think that's... There's a very interesting thing about women in the workplace in here. Not only just women, but also family men. I mean, there's a family thing here going on. And I've had, we're putting in for this Athena Swan thing, and which is like a, which is a gender promoting thing. Promoting women. women. Yeah. But it's not yeah. about promoting women. This is women. about UK universities, yeah. an initiative in UK yeah. universities. But it's not about promoting women. It's about realising that someone who's got any kind of care and responsibilities, be the elderly parents, or be the young children, or be the disabled, or unwell spouse, or anything, brother, whatever, um, what you find is that they are kind of sometimes less likely to get involved in these peripheral things, and the peripheral things seem to be where these things happen. You know, and even promotions. You know, I've seen promotions in our place, and I've thought, how did that happen? You know, and... You are a little bit gobsmacked and you think, whoa, that was a bit weird. But I think there's some of that's the nature of the university and its lack of confidence. So it wants to promote people that it feels are safe. Kind of interesting. Being just turn it all upside down and let the professors run the place, I tell you. <laughs> but who knows what would happen then? Yeah, we'd probably, we'd probably have happier staff. Um, what, what would be the difference that would make for happier staff? Staff feeling that somebody actually really understood what they wanted to do and where they wanted to be, instead of processes. So the, the amount of process management in my place has probably doubled in the last four years. Yeah, even in just four years, in yeah. that time frame. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, it's gone crazy. You know, there's... Um, and, and the responsibility that's devolved down to staff as initiatives have dropped down from above. And I say staff, I mean academic staff. Those responsibilities have fallen onto them. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a tragedy because in, in that time, nobody 
nobody has thought about the quality of the teacher and the quality of student experience, really. So they equate student experience with attendance. Yes. And grades. Yeah. And that's not experience. Easy to measure things. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the anxiety is, oh, are they attending? Are they not attending? You know, and, and who cares if they're attending? I actually don't care if they attend. If they're engaged with the learning process, I don't care where they're doing that. I don't care if they sat at home in bed engaged. I don't care. Because the important thing is that they're engaged with the learning process and they actually want to be part of that learning community in any way that suits them. Yeah. But instead we have this attendance rule. And I used to I used to blatantly break it, right? I used to I used to blatantly break the attendance. So we had this rule that they had to turn up to get you know, they had to sort of sign in yes. to classes. Yeah. This was about four years ago. Um and so they would turn up to the class just to get the attendance. And I would say to my students, I'd, I had a group of students who, some of them clearly didn't want to be there, and I'd say, guys, if you just want to get signing, sign at the beginning, then leave. Just go, you know, please don't stay. I'll give you a mark. I really don't care. You know, don't, don't sit at the but back. You being you'd be giving, yes, you'd be giving them a mark because they've demonstrated the learning experience through some Well, no, you're not, though, are you? No, you're not giving them a mark for that. You're giving them a mark because they've showed up physically in the lecture room. But but are you giving them... Oh, you mean no, the, the mark? attendance mark. Oh, the attendance yeah. mark, sorry. So I would I say, come on so in, you know, sign the sheet. Yeah. Then if you're just yeah. going to sit at the back playing on Facebook, just yeah. go. Yeah. I was quite happy to say that. Yeah. Obviously, I mean, that's possibly a sackable offence. You know, I um, can't do that anymore. Now we have now we have um, swiping with electric cards. You know, and they're outside the room, so the smart students swipe and then go away again. Mm. <laughs> so they don't have to swipe with. out at the end. No. They'll bring that in, though, <laughs> I'm sure they will. And these things are all they're all um pretend the pretend activities that make somebody in the university think yes. that the students are engaged and they're learning and they're complete they're completely missing the point. And that's what happens when you're managers who don't understand education and actually don't understand the modern student, which is more to the point, because the modern student is not the student that a lot of these even the academics were when they were at university. You know, when I was at university I used to go to about four classes a week if I was lucky. Literally, you know. All our classes were at nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, nobody got up at <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning. Nobody did. You just didn't, didn't go. You know, and, and, you, and so you didn't go to the classes hardly ever. And then you got to the end of the year and you crammed for your exams and you were lucky you got through and da, 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 da. We were like, you know, we were the top 5% or something them days and we could probably get away with it. You know, we could get away with it. Yeah. And the universities could get away with really rubbish teaching. It was a different era. Yeah. And then we've got lecturing staff in universities who sort of hark back to when they were students and somehow think that all our students now are rubbish because they're not as smart as what they were when they were at university. And, and oh, let's not give them any grades. And oh, let's, you know, oh the reason they're failing is because they're not very smart. It's, it's entirely the wrong approach. You know, it should be about, here are some students. What can we give them that gives them a good experience and that they learn from? But yeah, universities are very sad places, actually. Very sad places because they're not student focused. Yeah, despite all that increase in process and um, there's layers, there's layers upon layers upon layers. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I've had four kids through university, only two yeah. of which have succeeded to the end. <laughs> I've seen a lot. I've had kids go through clearing. I've had kids change universities. I've had kids quit, um, and I've seen it. I've seen it all, and I've watched them doing these things. I've watched one of my one of my children went to my university. And that was an absolute eye-opener because I watched the other side of the learning process. And the other side of the learning process is that, you know, we give them these PowerPoints on this Moodle 
We won't name the Moodle. Mm. <laughs> we, you know, we put PowerPoints of our lectures on the Moodle and then we give the students an exam at the end of the year and they're, like, they're thinking, oh, I need to revise, you know, for sake of argument, I need to revise, um, you know, clickers or whatever. And how do they find where clickers were in that set of PowerPoints? Yeah. Tell you what, that's really hard, yeah. you know, because you can't do a control F when you've got 24 PowerPoint slides. Yeah. So since then, changed my practice, all my PowerPoint slides are stacked. So week one, then week two is week one and two, and then week three is one, two, and three. So at the end, you've got one stack of slides. At least you can do a control F on that. <laughs> you know, but, but that's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. It was only because I saw my yeah. daughter struggling and yeah. I thought, whoa, how disconnected are we? Yeah. And, and the other thing is student email. No students read email from the university. They just don't do it in the UK. And, well, the evidence of my, all my kids and students I've talked to, mm. they don't read the university email. And then we, come, we talk to them by email and then we say, shout at them for not having... Crazy. So we completely and misunderstand so things. So what do you use to communicate with the students then? I don't use anything to communicate with my students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I send them emails because there's no other way. That's the thing, so I'm not communicating. So you're not, you don't have a Facebook page set I'm up looking. for classes or anything uh, like that? I don't think students should have to be on Facebook. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I don't, I, I don't know what the communication problem is. I don't yeah. know what the answer is. Yeah. We don't communicate with staff, so goodness only knows we don't communicate with students. But, but communication is, is a, a challenge. In universities, definitely a challenge. Yeah, and I don't know what the answer is, but certainly the answer is not to not understand the students. You have to first of all understand what they're actually doing. You know, it's like deadlines. Here's the thing: deadlines. My university deadlines at midnight. You know, student, and I've yeah. done it for years. I gave my students deadlines midnight, so they had midnight Sunday. Thought help them out. You know, midnight Sunday. So they've got all weekend. Yeah. Then they get six Sunday afternoon. And they can't contact the tutor to say I'm sick. Yeah. So your deadline should be on a working day. Yeah. Crazy. And I never thought of it. But also, <laughs> I, you know, it's one of my things about trying to not set expectations that people should be working at weekends. And that oh, if yeah. people choose mm. to, that's mm. their choice. But mm. to try to create our structures and processes yeah. so that that mm. message isn't sent out. And we've been trying to do that with you know, in our own group mm-hmm. about not sending emails mm. out of ours if, if we don't need to um, or at weekends. But, you know, thinking about the same courtesy for students, you know, saying to students, you know, like there's an expectation that you should be able to do your studies Monday to Friday. Now, we know students have much more flexible lives, but just the messaging Mm. that, you know. Well, it's just interesting because you you do things because and you do them the wrong way. You know, I thought setting setting students a 9 o'clock Monday morning deadline, for example, was helping them, you know, thinking, oh, they've got all weekend then. I'm not, am I? That's crazy, but it's only because you observe something else. Yeah. You don't you don't come to that knowledge because you think of it yourself. You observe yeah. somebody doing it. So you know, it's a whole fieldwork thing. You, you see somebody. You know, I, I saw my daughter. I had a daughter who got a migraine on the day she had a hand in, and it was a weekend. And I said, email your tutor, and she said, oh, they won't believe me. I don't I don't want to do that. They won't believe me. Now if that had been working day, she could have rang the mm. tutor up. Mm. And that you realise then, hang on, we're building these suicidal systems yeah. here. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, just interesting points about not understanding mm. students and the student experience, so their, their perspective, and that there's a different era of students coming through you know, in the whole gen. Yeah. Are we, where the millennials now are? Is it the millennials coming through? I don't are, know, are they past millennials? Are they generation something <laughs> else? I have no idea what whatever, they are. Whatever yeah. gen or millen it is, yeah. But yeah, the in- so the other interesting thing is, is that what universities do, they typically lag behind the school system. 
So the school sets something up and then colleges or whatever you have as, as further education sets something up and then universities come along at the end. So, you know, the whole thing like, um, you know, schools for 10, 15, 20 years in the UK have, have had this system where, you know, the child comes in an entry and they do like a predicted score for how good they're going to come out and the, and the, the children are sort of given an idea when they're about 15 that this is roughly what you're going to end up with at 16 and, and they get a little interview with the head teacher and the head teacher says, now, do you know this is what we're expecting you to achieve and this is where you are, you know, you're going to up your grade. And it's kind of like a personalised learning trajectory. You can, you can criticise that as a process. You can say it's nonsense and you can say it's good. But then universities are starting a little bit towards this idea where, you know, we have a piece of software that sort of, puts the student on there I've seen it I've got students and these things and the students get a green or an orange or a red colour against them as to whether they're achieving or not I don't know what the measure of achievement is but it's it's a similar kind of thing that starts to think that the student can be mapped to some learning analytics I think they're mainly based on attendance I'm not sure right. that somehow is supposed to predict a student at risk you know yeah. Yeah. and and it's interesting how these things work in schools, but schools are not universities. Yeah. And in a school, you've got a relationship with your teachers, yeah. and it's a different space, and they don't naturally map into a university environment. And this matters in the UK context, doesn't it? Because somehow attendance is has budget implications, does it? Not really. No, no. Well, the main the main reason universities brought attendance monitoring mm. in was to deal with Tier Four students. Which is so Tier Four students are students who are on a visa. And have to be in attendance at university for the visa to be kept. So instead of the UK government or some subset of same yeah. being in charge of whether these students are in the country or not, yeah. the UK government decided this was the university's problem. So universities have a legal requirement to mark attendance of tier right. four students. Right. So universities then said, oh, but we can't be prejudiced against tier yes. four students. So, so no, therefore everyone. we have to mark everyone. And then the consequence of that was we will now throw out students who aren't attending, whether the tier four or home. And that's a funny little route. It's a funny route that you go down, isn't it? Because if you take Stephen Fry, one of the smartest guys on the planet, you know, he never attended at Cambridge. You know, I don't imagine Stephen Hawking necessarily attended all that often. I've no idea. People don't attend university, end up with degrees and being valuable members of society. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Cause, Again, it's not understanding hmm. how students learn or no. what, what the experience No, it isn't because... And how to support them. You know, the, I think in the future, I think in the not-too-distant future, possibly after I'm gone, but possibly within my time, universities will start to accredit learning that you get somewhere else. I think that's the future for universities, a large extent of it. I think what they need to do is they need to modernise and understand that the, the knowledge is out there. You know, you've got, you've got MOOCs, you've got all sorts of things you can do. You can yeah. gather up knowledge from several yeah. places. Yeah. And I think in the future there will be a place where you bring the knowledge that you've accumulated yeah. and you get an accreditation for that yeah. in a constructive way. And then you know, and it may also give out that knowledge, so I think it'll have a dual role, but I think the accreditation of knowledge from outside will become more and more of a feature in the future. And I think that's a really interesting um, way to think of universities yeah. because it goes back then. If, you, if you've read the history of universities, I've, I've read that. Yes. <laughs> You know, and, and the early universities, I think they were in Germany, weren't they? Uh, the very first universities. I think so. And, and then places... Yeah, I've got a big fat <laughs> I'm sure you know. Well, I might have misremembered this, that's the thing. 
I think they're in Germany in places like that. And, and what would happen there is a professor would announce a lecture. So, you know, if I want to talk about child computer tragedy, I announce a lecture up mm -hmm. in them days, I'd yeah. put a notice yeah. up on the wall and said, you know, Professor John Reed is talking about yeah. child computer interaction in the 29th century, whatever. And then and I'd have done my lecture, people would have come along, they might have taken some notes, they might not have done, you know, it would have been quite oratory. Obviously, there wasn't PowerPoint. And then someone else might announce another lecture and the professors would have announced lectures and the people would have come and accessed that education, you know, because they'd have been curious. Yeah. So we've got, we've gone a long way since yeah. that because we then ended up with a curriculum. So the, yeah. so the, the big stage from, from that point, there was then a curriculum and the curriculum, you know, ended up with a named subject, you know, and it was quite fascinating. And fixed paths. I think it was John, New John, oh, what was he called? John New, not John. John Ruskin, who was a great philosopher, he like he was sent down from Oxford. You know, he's failed basically, and then he went back several years later, wrote a paper, got a degree, wrote a paper, got a degree. Think of that, you know, because he was a philosopher, he was he had knowledge. So that's it. There's like a circle there to be otherwise enclaved, and and you know we kind of vaguely address it with accreditation, prior learning, but once you've got a curriculum, it's very hard to get those credits. But when you don't have a curriculum yeah. and you say, you make your own curriculum, <laughs> you know, do you like your curriculum to me? Yeah. I think that's where we're going. You heard it first. Lots of lo <laughs> <laughs> thinking that there's lots of challenges there. We don't have time to go and discuss them, but there's just lots of challenges about tensions between quality standards and um, being able to sort of compare students if you need to and in in terms of, you know, how do you judge the quality of this degree, I think, or this... Well, quality, see, that's another... But I remember about four years ago, five years, six years ago, we were shown a graph in a, in a school meeting that showed the number of first-class computer science degrees that our competitors were awarding. And just a steep, <laughs> steep curve. Cause... Versus the number we were awarding. Yeah. We were awarding yeah. a really low percentage. Yeah. And we were told, our students... You know, if you look at the student entry points are the same as these students, why are we not awarding the same as yeah. these people? Yeah. And suddenly there was this big drive about, oh, we're not giving enough first. I tell you, we weren't giving hardly any first. We were giving hardly any firsts, right? Partly because we decided that that's roughly where we were mm -hmm. as an institution, that we didn't give many firsts. Um, partly because our marking structure didn't let us give very many firsts. It was very hard to get a first because you had to get a first in your dissertation. And if you didn't get a first dissertation, you couldn't have a first degree. And, and so there was some policy changes. Yeah. <laughs> and we were also told to think about how we marked, you know. Yes. And that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, and where we are now, we probably give out more firsts. Um, that you wouldn't have given those years ago? Well, I don't know if we would have or wouldn't because, because we had a marking system. In, in the UK, we have a marking system that marks to 70. So we used to mark to 70. So you'd give 70 as a first. And, it was very hard to get a first because the most you ever gave someone was seventy-two. <laughs> you know, so so we've you know we, we're encouraged to think to eighty now. Let's think that there are a few more marks available. Yeah. You know, and if you had exams, it was easier to get those high marks because your exam had to be out of hundred. Yes. But once you've got more qualitative marking, yes. it's quite yeah. So there's a little bit of a feature creep there. But but in terms of comparing. I mean, the whole classification of degrees is, is an interesting space because it's, it's actually a, a tool for governments to beat you up with to some extent. And at one point when, um, when we had a dispute with the government in the UK, 
there was a little bit of a narration in the Guardian uh, somewhere said you know some guy said uh, maybe we should just all award everybody a first this summer and let the government deal with that you know yeah. we'll just say we're not we're refusing yeah. to grade yeah. <laughs> and then actually we weren't punishing the students because we're going to first they'd be happy um, but maybe the government would then understand that we were doing a valuable job. Yeah. Uh, but it's that, that's just an interesting thing, isn't it? How you match quality for yeah, quality. And, yeah. and, and again, uh, the, the political context in which those marks get... Um, and it's the, the, the structure gets defined. It's a bit the same with PhDs, isn't it? And, yeah, and you know, you, you, you'll know yourself, you, you examine a PhD here and a PhD there, and there can be a broad difference between this PhD and that PhD. Yes. There's a broad difference, but it's, it's considered enough, and it's hard to mark out the stars in the UK system. There is no star rating. But I also do external examining of courses, you know, try and do that because I think, I do believe you should be a complete academic if you can be, otherwise you don't understand what the job is everyone's doing. So I do examination of courses and I've gone and I've sometimes said, oh, man, I think your standards are a bit, you know, I think you're, you think you're overmarking. Mm-hmm. And they all nod their heads and say, yeah, we'll take that on board. But, you know, they don't typically do anything. <laughs> I'm talking here with Professor Janet Reid from the University of Central Lancashire. In the next part, she shifts to more of the personal aspects of academic life and how to manage things like work and family, how to deal with people and how to lead. If you have thought there were gems before, wait until you hear this next discussion. So what makes a complete academic? Ah, well, teaching, research, innovation, Mm. outreach. Mm. I guess it's those four. Yeah. Um, I think you have to teach, or at least teach some of the time. I mean, teaching's hard. And I'm aware that my teach, when I teach my students, they're possibly getting sometimes a lot more because I think I'm dead cool. Mm. <laughs> sometimes a lot less because I haven't got a lot of time. You know, swings around the yeah. Ways, yeah? yeah. Um, I think you have to do research of some kind. And my good friend, Scott McKenzie, says research isn't research until it's published which therefore means you have to publish, because anyone can say they do research. Um, I think you have to do some sort of outreachy type, STEMI type stuff. I mean, we go, we've just finished doing five weeks in a school just doing maker activities for no, for no, for no points, you know, we've just gone and done it. Um, Science festivals, I tend to rock up at those from time to time. So I think STEM is dead important because I think, you know, I think we should be doing that. And, and I think there is this innovation strand because if we if we're only just writing papers and we don't actually make anything in our field, if we don't make a difference, yeah. either by making something or changing something, and I mean, I, mean, I do I do like in, in the ref in the UK, I do like the impact agenda. So the the ref is the is a research assessment a evaluation ses- thing, yeah, yeah. and that's every five years, is it? Well, is it? It rather depends when they get okay. organised, but five to six to eight yeah. to ten to. <laughs> Where there's yeah, so there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot wrong with the ref. Yeah. So what you do is you you have to capture all your publications. It's just gone through a big review, the Stern review, and and there was a rumor that every single academic in the country would be measured. Um, lots of universities balked against this. Personally, I think that would be a good point because it would point to start from, and it would make sense because you'd have a ben- benchmark. It won't be the case, does it? So you've got publications which are ranked. Now the downside to that is that universities then equate every publication with whether it's referable or not. So when you want to go to British Computer Society conference, you can't go because it's not referable. And and that's wrong because the ref doesn't say that. Ref says, great paper, we don't care where it's published, it's still counted. 
but the universities, you know, their their loose interpretation of this mm. is, and, and I know this happens in other countries, doesn't mm. it? Where yes, yeah, there's a the ranking. National, yeah. Um, and national the, conferences come down low on the yeah, ranking. Yeah, yeah. And but the the impact agenda in REF is particularly nice. So you know, you get March of Environment and your PhD students you've had, you know, how much research funding you've had, that kind of thing. But the impact, you've got to tell a story about the impact of your research. And I like that. It's hard, but I like it. Because I think it says that your research does more than just be an academic yeah. publication. But, there's all but the again, time. people who, people play the game, obviously. Yeah. 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 Well, that's with all, any, <laughs> any of these systems, whether it's the students checking in or whatever. But the, all of this is great, but it's the time factor. You know, How do you fit it all in? Because making an impact can actually, and, and that innovation part can actually take, can have a long lead time and take a lot of Yeah, effort. so I think I've got to write two impact case studies in about the next three days. <laughs> Oops. For, <laughs> For internal review. Okay. I mean, the next ref isn't until 2020, 2021. So, but we have to get this story. Now, the interesting thing is if you identify, so, so what we did in our group for this, actually, we all sat together, all the researchers in computing, we did like a brainstorm of all the places we could do impact. We talked about where the impact was, how good the papers were underneath each of these things. We sort of had a, and we came down to four things. So now we want to invest in those four things. It's quite hard to get the money to do that. You've got to, get, got to yes. drag money out of somebody because yeah. you need money. Yes, exactly. You know, we've I guess been, that's what yeah. it's the time and resources. Yeah, we've been doing some great work yeah. with, with um, the children we did in India, in Mumbai, yeah. and then we've done stuff in Africa. Um, and I put in for some money to get a intern in India to carry on with that work and didn't get it, you know, and yet someone else got money to buy a robot and you think, come on, I've got impact here, man, man, I've got impact. But it probably depends what the money is, presumably with EMR4, I don't know. Um, but yeah, if you're in a great big institution and you've got a lot of people behind you, you will draw impact better. And yes, it takes ages, doesn't it? I mean, I I went, I'm, I'm currently doing some work with the Children's Hospital it was the best part of best part of three days I've spent just going there and talking to them before I even start anything. You know, people don't realise that yeah. you have a lead into things, don't you? Yeah, yes. And the lead out. It's, it's, yeah, it's... <laughs> and nobody notices that. So the interesting yeah. thing in, in academia is, again, that time. We do have a problem right through the system about understanding what the academic does. Yes. So the complete academic probably collapses on a Friday evening with a glass of wine or four or seven <laughs> because they're so... And then they'll probably get up on a Saturday and start doing a whole load of so university do, work. Do you do much work at the weekend? <laughs> I, or, or are you happy? With, you know, so I can, I can ask this in two ways. I can ask, do you do much work at the weekend? And that embodies an assumption that thou shalt do work Monday to Friday, not at weekends. Or um, I think one of the advantages of academics is we have flexibility and autonomy. It, yeah. Are you happy with the... Yeah, amount of time that right. You so did. again, I've spent a lot of time reading time management mm. books. Yeah, <laughs> or not time yeah. management, time time hopelessness books. <laughs> um, and we, you know, we we have these conversations in our group, which is nice. That's why groups are good. So we have conversations. You know, most of my group have got young families, so you know, I appreciate they want to go home and do sports day. They want to pick the kids up three days a week or whatever, and you know whatever situation they find themselves in um i've now got young grandchildren ah, you know sometimes i'm called upon to look after them you know sometimes i just want to go and have coffee with one of my daughters and, and i think that's nice you can do those things yeah. so when the children were little it was quite interesting when my 
I've got four children and there's 10 years between them, so I've got like the older two and the younger two. There's not really a gap, they were evenly spaced. But when my two younger ones were little, the older ones were old enough to notice things. And they once said to me, Mum, when you're working at home, the children, <laughs> the children, <laughs> I mean, this was the nine-year-old, you know, talking about the four-year-old, the children don't know if you've been a mum or not. Oh, my goodness. Now, that was very perceptive. Oh. And I've taken this to my team and I've said to my young team, who are young families, I've got young families, I'll say to them, Guys, if you're going to work at home, don't work at home when you're being a parent. You know, it's not fair on your young children to, to do this, you know, because my children told me this. And, you know, they'll say I'm working at home because they think it's convenient to work at home while they're looking after the kids. Dream on. You're looking after the kids. Yeah. You're not working at home. And, and so I think that's an interesting conversation that people, I think if you've got a, a, an understanding manager, they will understand that, you know, if you are working at home, for seven hours, and you've got young children at home for seven hours, you're probably doing two hours of work, of work, and there's only a certain type of work you can do in that environment. And I think one of the interesting things, I've read this book called The Productivity Ninja, and he talks a lot in that book about the different kinds of work you can do, you know, and understanding there's work you can do. You know, you can sit at home and you can decide to delete your inbox yeah. while you're being distracted. Yeah. You can do that because it's a low-effort job. Yeah. Oh, making your to-do list, yeah. all that kind of thing. And there's this great, great book called Deep Work um, where it talks about the, is it the Udomanian machine? Udomanius machine? I haven't read Have that heard book, this? this is marvellous, yeah. Cal somebody or other. Yeah, I'll find <laughs> and, a link. And he talks about how people do deep work. Mm. And deep work is actually the valuable work for academics a lot yeah. of time. It's like very, very deep work where you're completely engrossed in that deep work. And in this Udomania machine or whatever, it's like four rooms that you go through and you, and you pass your achievements. And then you go through like a coffee and you relax and then you've got resources and then you've got the place. And it's like a concept. Nobody's kind of made this thing, but it's this concept. And I think the really hard thing for academics all the time is finding that deep workspace. Yes, it is. It is. Because there's so much noise and clutter and you can think you'd be, I mean, I can go to work and I could be in physically in the building for eight hours. I could come yeah. home and think, well, I didn't do anything. Yes. Although you were really busy all day. <laughs> I had meetings. Yeah. I got caught in the corridor, yeah. went for coffee. Yeah. I mean, probably do things with coffee. Yeah. Coffee's a good thing. But yeah, I think that flexibility. So mm. interestingly, what I used to do when I first, uh, particularly when the children were young and I was doing my PhD and things, I, I've got all these sheets. I've still got them at home. <laughs> I'm, I'm proper sad, aren't I? <laughs> So I've got all these sheets of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I used to print them out on A4 paper. And I'd have C in, C out. And I would count in the hours and count out the hours. And a colleague of mine still does this similar yeah, kind so of what, thing. Tell me, what does that mean? So I would see, because some weeks you will work 50-odd hours yes, each. Yes. Another week you'll work 20-odd hours yes. each. You know. Yeah. And this was counting in if I'd overworked, if you like, in hours. Yeah. Now, this was in, a, in an earlier version of myself, right? Yeah. And then I had this uh, really nice head. It was a female head of department. Only I've had one female head of department. And she once said to me, um, Janet, if you can do 100% of the job in 80% 80% of the time because you're super efficient or because you're magnificent, (laughs) because you're fantastic. (laughs) Someone actually said that to you. Then don't feel you have to fill the other 20% with extra work. (laughs) Yep. And that's actually... I am actually very efficient. Yeah, I can yeah. do a full-time job in three days a week, I reckon. Yeah. I reckon I can do, you know, and, and the problem you have is if you're good at your job, yeah. 
you know, I'm fast at writing, I'm fast at reading, I'm fast, I'm fast, yeah. at, fast at most things, fast at walking. But if you're good at your job, yeah. if you're not careful, you have this terrible Protestant guilt, work yes, ethic guilt. I know that you've, you've that, got to fill the hours. That, oh, hang on, so what else shall I take yeah. on? Yeah. And then it's very subconscious. And I think one of the problems for the academic is they find it really hard to say, I've done work. You know, and one of the nicest things is when you go on a holiday, isn't it? You go on a holiday for like three weeks and you spend all the two weeks beforehand clearing everything. Then you go on a holiday and you have cleared it. Well, I do. I clear it. Off you go, holiday. Don't think about work. And you don't think, oh, I need to go and find things though to do in these hours, do you? You don't, you don't think that then. But we're really bad at understanding and, and giving ourselves rewards when we've, when we've beat those. Yeah. Instead, we, we, we kind of feel anxious. Yeah. We didn't should, should yeah. we? That's nice, the idea of giving yourself reward for actually getting it done more efficiently. Yeah, because you should. Yeah, just the trick is to work yeah. fast on three days a week and take the other two days walking the hills. Yeah, where you're still <laughs> thinking about work often. Yeah, and, but you shouldn't yeah. have to justify that. The key yeah. thing is, and another one of my you know, heads of department at one point did say, about the one of uh, the last one I had that left last year, you know, he said he was interested in outcomes, not hours. And if you do your outcomes, that's all he wanted to know. But it's hard for you because it's hard for you to. Sometimes that's really hard, and especially f- for someone like me, where you know, for many years I was juggling children and work. So you know, I would go home early to pick the children up, you know, or I, I would not. I, I had an elderly relative I used to go visit once every three weeks on a working day, and I'd feel guilty. Yeah. I'd feel guilty about that. I think I had to make up the time. Yeah. It's kind of weird. But it's natural, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. There's also the, the problem of the people who aren't as efficient and if there's mm. if if yeah, that that head is saying only concerned with outputs and they take mm. seven days to do five days outputs, which is Yeah, but a that's an interesting but that's to, a management problem because mm. if you've got people it's like people preparing lessons, they'll say, Well, I can't get my lessons prepared yeah. and the answer to that is not to give them Less teaching yeah. to tell them how to prepare things faster yes. and help them understand that you don't always yeah. have to prepare your lesson to the nth degree. Because yes. we could all spend Absolutely. all day every day preparing Absolutely. lessons. Absolutely. Absolutely. We could so, all spend seven hours preparing a one hour yeah. class. So there's a couple of things I get out of that is, you know, th- that discussion is having a clear idea for yourself what is a reasonable set of tasks or activities mm. that you sh- mm. can do in your time. Mm. And if you happen to get that done quicker, then celebrate. And, um, oh, I've got a mental block on. The second thing I was going to say, also just thinking about how you work so that you can become more efficient and and being reflective about that. Yeah, so the other problem is that sometimes I go into carnage, obviously. We all do, don't we? And I just go into meltdown and I go, go, oh, my days, (laughs) I've got too much on. I mean, because I've read so many of these books, (laughs) I've got them all in my bookshelves. Because I'm fascinated by how people work, especially academics, because it's never been really, really studied. Um, I have this, I have this system where I make a list of projects, and I've got one of these uh, journal books, you know, the bullet journal yeah. books. I didn't follow it bullet exactly. I kind of, it's, it's a bit more productivity ninja. It's a little bit of the one thing. It's another great book. Um, but, but basically, if you have a list of projects, and when you realise you've got 53 projects on the go, you do realise that that's probably mentally too much. <laughs> yes. And that's when you go to your head and you say, hang on, guys, a little carnage here. And I think one of the important things is to be able to say to your line manager that you are in carnage. Yes. I think that's important. That's nice, yeah. Um, that's brave, though. You know, you yeah, have to, you know. You can do it if you've got 54 can, projects. I think it might yeah. be hard if you've only got five. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> but it's also, I think, yeah. it, depending mm. on the stage you're yeah. at as well, if you're coming up to tenure mm. or promotion, mm. um, yeah. you maybe don't want to be... So I had an example last year but one. Was it last year? But yeah. Last year but one, July 2017, June 2017. Yeah. I emailed my head of department and I said, and I didn't say I'm in carnage, I said, I am going to be in carnage next semester from September to December, yeah. by the way, because I've looked ahead and that's smart academics look ahead and they think what's coming on you know and I had two PhD students writing up well anyone who knows anything about PhDs knows when they're writing up you need a lot of time for them so I had two of them writing up I had two teaching classes to do I had a project to run I had a visiting academic come in I had a new project starting up and I just emailed I said I'm going to be in carnage I need you to take something off me and actually nothing was taken off me right it wasn't his job someone else would took it off me I ended up in carnage. And then they said, look, I told you. Yeah. I did tell you. Yeah. Don't tell me I didn't tell yeah. you because I told you. So when the students were complaining that they weren't getting feedback fast enough, I said, yeah. I, pre- I warned you about this. This is not a surprise. Yeah. You, and, and one of the problems you have in, in academia is that that kind of thing isn't necessarily taken seriously. And he should have known. And he did know afterwards and we had a conversation about it. Um you know, I think people have to be honest and you have to be able to predict those things. And, and certainly if you're if you're at higher levels, you know, like as a professorial level, you will have a lot of demands on you. You know, I do appraisals, I have, I'm supposed to be writing grants, supposed to be doing this. And it's, and it's the number of projects that you end up with. The number, it's not necessarily the size of them. It's the number of things you have to attend to. And so, and, and the saddest thing then is the things that really matter... Get left. Exactly. All of this. you trying to all write. All of this um, deep work and yeah, uh, and, 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 and so I mean, if you read productivity and and deep work, you know they talk about protecting that time. You know, we've we've just started these uh, shut up and write days. Yeah. You know, yeah. protect your time, protect your space. Yeah. You know, another colleague of mine is writing for an hour every day, just yeah. to which yeah. is again a deep work principle yeah. that you. I think they call it the journalistic approach. Yeah. Every time you stop, you write. <laughs> But it's that's that's the and, and interestingly you go into academia nobody gives you any of this information. You have to find it all yourself. Yes. And I've had to find all this out. Yes. And I bet you've interviewed thirty people who also found it out. Yes. And yep. You think, why does nobody learn? Yeah. So hopefully that by <laughs> you sharing this, people will there'll be mm. lots of people who will have ideas and you know, to think about because there are things there about taking the time to put your head up mm. out of the details mm-hmm. to stop and look at, survey, mm. you know, what's mm. coming up, how's it going, how am I going to be mm-hmm. coping with it, what do I need to do about it? And there's hidden in there a lot of, I don't know, proactive responsibility that you're taking for your own Well, you have to look after business. yourself, don't you? Yeah. You have to look after your health. Yes, exactly. So you have to be able to find time to run or yeah. smell the flowers. So what do, what or, do you do? You know, look to you. So you I do a bit of sewing. I do yeah. some pet patchwork in. I do... I go sailing in the summer. I, I say sailing, we just kind of potter up and down the river. Yeah. I do running. I yeah. do run. So do you have sort of a daily routine? Not exactly. Because some of those things for, are yeah. more sort of like... Um, for a little while, I did this thing called the Miracle Morning, which was a bit, a bit, eff- a bit of an effort, really, but that was mixed up meditation, affirmations, visualisations, yeah. like kind of thing. It's a bit, it's a bit sad, really, because visualisations don't make you happy. <laughs> you need something to make you happy. Happiness is a bit be- better than that, so I've kind of given up on a lot of that. I have moments when I come onto things and come off things. So sometimes, you know, sometimes I meditate, sometimes I don't. Mm. Some days I go to work on the bus so I can read on the way to work rather than drive. Nice. It's kind of sometimes I'm much better at this than other. Yeah. Let's not pretend that I'm magic because oh. I'm not. 
You know, I'll, I'll, often it's yeah. carnage. You get up at morning, have you washed my like hair? I think it's like that university <laughs> sign, becoming. What was yeah. it? Becoming, becoming world class. Becoming. <laughs> yeah, and and constantly. Sometimes I have like an, you know, sometimes you're on a roll. Mm. I mean, the other week I had a great productive day, and, and I was like, wow, that was a great day. Another day you have a really rubbish day. Yeah. You know, another day you can't even figure out, you can't even remember how to write an academic paper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seven of your students complain. Yeah. You get an email from the boss saying that you know someone's appealing against the grade. Mm. But but I think when you every so often you get on top of things, yes. yeah. and you're aware that it runs smoothly. But the and I'm great under pressure. I actually love a midnight deadline, and I work right up to the midnight. You know, I've I've written like five, six great big EPS FP seven bids grants. You know the European things. And they kill you. I've never had one. You know, but every year we used to write them, get closer and closer. But I kind of liked all that. Our team, we're a great team. We work together on these things. And I like that. And the deadline juices it because deadlines do juice. And that's the other problem you have because if you are a little bit of the kind of person that needs that adrenaline to get it out yeah. of you, yeah. it's hard to start early. Yes, but if you know not, that, then you can also. You've got to give yourself the time. Yes, you've got to give yourself the time at the deadline to yes. let it juice so out. So know yourself yeah. and, and yeah. plan. And other people can't work like that. Other people yeah. can never work to deadline. Yeah. You know, I've had PhD students who never worked. To, you know, they, they want to have everything ready yeah. six days before, and I find that bizarre. I think, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but every, you have to also understand that the people around you. And and one of the things about teamwork, you know, in, in our team, you have to understand each other's team yes. practices, and you have to understand how how and your colleagues how, how you're going to negotiate those yeah. different preferences and, together, and how they want to work. And yeah. you know, we'll often have a paper coming in late, and often it's a it's four of us authoring it. You know, and I'll, I'll email that before and I say, guys, are any of you going to have any time to work on this in the next three days? Give me your slots. It's kind of it's that collaborative yeah. management task, yeah. isn't it? You know, and if they say they haven't got any time, I say that's fine because yeah. one of the funny things our university does. And I don't know if this is everybody. I think they assume that none of us have got anything scheduled, apart from teaching. Yeah. So they'll suddenly put a meeting, like, on a Wednesday and say, you all have to come to this, you know, on the tell you on a Monday. Yes. And then you say, I can't come. I've actually, I've actually got that time to do something else. And it's very easy to say, I'll come because it's scheduled. And that's, that's a, a trick that you have to learn is to say, actually, no, I've actually scheduled something that is more important than your meeting. Yeah. And I'm going to so, stick to it on that. And I'm yes. going to say... I'm sorry, I've already scheduled this. Yeah, and having it in your diary helps you do that in a way. Yeah, and it, I did read it's... about somebody who um, puts in. In fact, I tell you who it was. It was the lady who wrote Lean In. Yes. Have you read Same that? Book. Have you read that? It's a great book. I mean, I don't know Audible, so I've listened to it. I was running. I often have self-help books, self-help. So I, like, sort of I often have those sorts of books on Audible, and when I go when running, you're running, okay, and I play them over again yeah. because often they say things that are really useful. Yes. You come back to them. Um, and I did her running, and she said that she used to sh- put an appointment in her diary that sounded like really something or other, and it wasn't really. She was going home, <laughs> something, you know. But it's about yeah. it's putting your own you. needs, managing your own time, and prioritising that, and not assuming that others others because nobody in the university will do that for you. No, exactly. You've not in a university it. because you're not person managed. So one of my daughters is a manager in a, in a retail company. Are you allowed to mention companies? She's at Clark's. She manages a team, and she is such a good manager. And I never understood management until I watched her. Watched her, as in not standing there, but watched her as a human doing management. And that's active person management, and she gets the best out of those people. And I think to myself, why have I, why have I not had the luxury of that kind of management? 
and that's a bit rubbish. Even her recruitment processes are really robust. Yeah. You know, her appraisal processes are really robust. And in university, you don't get any of that. It's just kind of all a bit ad hoc. Yeah. Yes. And that's a bit rubbish because, you know, you, you would have thought you were paying these people all this money. You'd have yeah. thought the least you would do is try and not manage as in manage, but it's the fact that it's, it's the encouragement, yes. the understanding individual needs. It's those, it's those key things. You encourage, you understand the needs, you motivate them, you say, well done. Yes, you say well done. Well done, done. you say well done. Wouldn't yeah. it be nice to get a well done from time to time? <laughs> oh, well done, Janet. You know, the other day I actually emailed my boss and I said, hey, I've had a great day, by the way, today. Two papers accepted, one funded bid submitted on a roll, yay. And he did actually email back and say, great. That was nice, you know. Then he said, what funding bids? I thought, you signed them off. <laughs> <laughs> so I refused to answer that. But, but Pete, you want a little bit of encouragement yes, from time to time? Indeed, you know? yeah. Well, totally. we, have, we, have, we have this finish tape, you know, for children's sports days. Mm. You know, on the run, yes, on the run across yes, the village. Yes. So I bought this finish tape. Yes. And anyone who finishes something that they've really been struggling with, they can come to me and get a finish tape and we tape it across our doors. <laughs> and they it run works. through it. Oh, and just stick it on the door. <laughs> Preview finish something, that finish tape. Oh, that's so like if you oh, write oh, okay, so, oh, it's got stick it on your door. On yeah, it's got finish on it. <laughs> stick it on your door, yeah. And then we had certificates. We, we, we've got like certificates yes. of rosettes and things. We have like rosettes for, you know, great work. That's brilliant. <laughs> I just think that's so, so important. But, but universities don't do this, no. do they? No. And it's partly because there's sort of a... It's partly this idea of academic freedom yeah. that you can spend your time doing whatever you want. Which is not really true because you should be doing something. The university are paying you, but, but it's also this idea that nobody quite knows what we're doing. No, like, no yeah. one knows what it's doing. Nobody knows. Better go. Finish at the yeah. time, and we yeah. should finish because this is way. Over. I may have to. I may need to cut this in two two parts. Um, I could give you a lot more. I know. I know. I'd love to, and I'm just. I, I have a, a hard time constraint, so um, I need mm. to go. But do you have any final thoughts or reflections or? Comments for whom? Oh, life, the universe, and anything. I love my job. It's clear that's brilliant. I love my job. Eighty-seven percent of the time. Yeah, <laughs> I hate it when I'm expected to do what I think are administrative tasks. Now, that's not because I'm a snob about tasks, because no. I'm definitely not. Yeah. You know, I'm not a snob it's about tasks. It's silly administrative tasks. It's because they used to be done by the administrative yeah. people, and now they're not. And I think that's, I think that's this, this administrative creep that's going on. Um, and I hate it when um, my, let's say my endeavours, and not just my, the endeavours of the people that I kind of identify with, yeah which is my team and my larger team and so on, are sort of thwarted by some sort of random decision-making that happens anywhere else, actually. I mean, it could be the government, it could be, I mean, like Brexit, goodness me, don't get me started on that. Um, but, it, but it could be like Brexit, it could be like um, something the government do, it could be yeah. something our university does, and that, and that sort of derailing of, because you think you're doing the right thing and it, and it turns off. But, you know, the other 87% of the time, yeah, I think it's a great job, I would... Uh, you know, I've had a, I've, so far, yeah, I still enjoy my job, which is that's, nice. That's brilliant. A lot of people, you know, get my age and thinking about retirement. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. about retirement. I'm thinking about, uh, what's the opposite of retirement? Retirement. Uh, well. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, if I didn't like it, I would quit. Yes. Would you? Yeah. And I think the university, and I've done it before, yeah. And I think, 
I'm lucky to have a spectacularly good team of people. I say spectacularly. I mean, I'm sure they could be like smarter, maybe, and they could be like you know, really, really hard working, or they could be like really, 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 really imaginative. You know, they're all the mixture of those things, but they're a great team of people. And but it sounds like you've mm. also had a big role mm. to play in creating the culture for a great team of people to become well, a great team of people. Like to think I have, yeah. 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 Like two of them have got reader promotions. Yes, yeah, I think, yeah. I've got some readers now. Yeah. So I can <laughs> dish all the rubbish. Out to them. <laughs> Perhaps on the administration. But no, if you, I think you work with nice people. But maybe you end up working with nice people because maybe you're just lucky or maybe you create a culture of being with nice people. Um, yeah, but yeah, I'd love to I would love to, I'd love to manage them, I'll be honest. I'd love to manage them, really, instead of just lead them. I, I'm happy leading them, but I don't think we have leadership in that sense. I don't know if you've seen that thing about the wolves. Is it pack of wolves? Have you seen that little... Like, it's on Facebook somewhere. And there's this pack of wolves and the leader actually is at the back. I know making sure nobody gets lost yeah. and that's kind of yeah. nice and that's, yeah. yeah because you you actually don't want to lead from the front it's a facilitating mm. and enabling yeah enabling um, letting people model. do things helping yeah. people do things yeah. and I've done, I've done a course I did a course on that so I've, I've done a leadership course yeah. I've, I've read about leadership there are very few good books on academic leadership partly because the context is so different in different places you know because what happens in the US and Yes. The brutal tenure system. But, but at the core, the dealing with people mm. that you're working mm. with on projects as mm. students, as PhDs, mm. um, it's about how do you bring out the best in people and how do you... Yeah, and how do you help them to identify what they're good at? You yeah. know? So one yeah. of my ex-head of departments once said to me, said, Janet, you know, as, as he was leaving, actually, he was a guy who was leaving, he, he, he left under a bit of a cloud, and he was leaving, he said, Janet, I'm just going to leave now tonight because I've got to leave tonight. And he said, whatever you do, he said, you know, you're a star. Continue shining. Don't do admin. You rubbish admin. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sometimes we don't want to hear the reality about what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing, yeah. you know? Yeah, indeed. And, and I think yeah. one of the tricks of leadership is understanding what people should be doing, yeah. helping them understand. Yeah. Not you, you don't know. Helping them understand yes. what they're good at. Yes. Helping them understand what they're bad at but could be fixed yeah. towards. Yeah. <laughs> and helping them understand what things they should avoid at all costs. Yeah. yeah. And you, is it, you... Mm. Having that sense of how the mm. team meshes together in, in that. But you mix only of know that if you know people. You've yeah. got to know people. You've got to really understand them. Yeah. Yeah. No. But yeah. 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 Brilliant, Janet. Thank you. No worries. No worries. No worries. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. Mm-hmm.